If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. In a moment, we'll look at verses 16 and 17 and following together. This is our fifth week in the book of 2 Timothy. And we have seen in several weeks that God has good work for us to do. And this week, we will see that there is something available to us that will equip us for every good work that God has for us to do. This thing gives us what we need to do every good work God wants us to do. That almost seems too good to be true. How can one thing equip us for all that God calls us to do? This one thing equips us to love God with all we have and all we are. Equips us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves because there is a proper self-love for children of the King. This equips us to love our spouse well, to love our kids well, to love our co-workers well, to love our community well, to love our country well. How can one, is it possible one thing could possibly equip us to do all of that? Yes, there is something that does so. And I want to share it with you today from 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let me give you the context of these verses And then I will read them to you and pray, and we will dig in and talk about them together. First, our context. Recall that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. Paul is in a Roman prison. He has been put there by the Emperor Nero during the persecution of Christians in the mid-60s AD. And Paul has been sentenced to death. He knows that he will soon be executed. And as Paul faces death, he is telling Timothy in this letter what good work God has for his people to do. And today we see what it is that will equip us for every good work that God has for us to do. And we see that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Hear now God's word. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you that you dignify us and the fact that you allow us to do good work along with you. You allow us to be your co-laborers in building your kingdom. We thank you for the good work that you have for us to do. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that you equip us for that good work. And I ask now that you would be willing to equip us even during this time, even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. What is it that Paul says will equip us for every good work? It is the Scripture, right? It's the Scripture, the Word of God. It equips us for every good work. We've been in this letter for four weeks now, and every week I've called you to spend time in the Scripture, to devote time to the Scripture. And today, we're going to look at 
why we should spend time in the scripture. Why should we devote so much time and energy to the scripture? And I want to look at two reasons why with you. First, because the scripture is God's word. And second, because it's useful. Let's look at those two things together. First, because it's God's word. You see that there in verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed. That word God-breathed is literally Theonoustos, Theo, God, Noustos, breathed, that the scripture is God's breath. You see, just as my breath is coming out of my mouth and is being used to form words as my tongue and my teeth and my lips move, so the scripture came out of God's mouth just like breath comes out of our mouth. So Paul is saying that this is the scripture is literally the word of of God, that it came out of his mouth. Now, when we say all scripture is God breathed, I think it's important for us to take just a moment to talk about what does this all include? Everyone agrees Paul's direct references to the Old Testament because Timothy is a young Jewish boy, grew up in a house with a Jewish mom and a Jewish grandmother. When they shared the Holy Scriptures with him, it was the Old Testament because the New Testament had not been written yet. But when we really look at the scripture and study, it is correct in principle to include the New Testament in this statement as well. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Let me just give you a few in just the next few minutes. The first is this. If you believe in the divinity of Christ then anything Jesus says would be God's word, right? Think about it. If he's God in the flesh and then he speaks and says something, that would be God's word. And if you read his teaching, which is all in the New Testament, it takes, he takes a scriptural level of authority when he is pronouncing those things. And so, first of all, anything Jesus said in the New Testament would be God's word. Second, Jesus promised that he would send the Holy Spirit to remind the apostles of what he had taught so that they could write those things down as a foundation for the early church. Jesus talks about that in John 14 and in John 16 and Ephesians 2 and verse 20. We're told that the apostles and prophets form that foundation for the church. And then the apostles confirmed that that process that Jesus said would happen, they confirmed that it actually did happen. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 1 and verse 12 writes, For I did not receive it, talking about the gospel, what he is teaching, I did not receive it from any man, but by revelation from Jesus Christ. So Paul says, Jesus taught me these things. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13, Paul says that he is imparting words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Holy Spirit, which is exactly what Jesus had promised that he would do. He would send the Spirit to remind the apostles of what he had taught them so that they could teach those things and write them for the church. Number three, consider Paul's other writings. In his first letter to Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, in verse 18, Paul is making an argument and he says, For Scripture says, same word he uses here where all Scripture is God-breathed, he says, For Scripture says, and then he quotes Deuteronomy, which is the fifth book of the Old Testament, and he quotes Luke, the Gospel of Luke, which is the third book in the New Testament. So certainly when Paul uses the word scripture, he is including the Old Testament 
and at least the portions of the New Testament that Luke has written, which would be the Gospel of Luke and Acts. Paul also, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, expresses that he is thankful that the church in Thessalonica received Paul's word, not as the word of man, but he writes, as it actually is the word of God even though Paul is the one who wrote it and sent it to them. So in Paul's mind, the New Testament is part of the Word of God and part of what he calls Scripture. Number four, it's not just Paul, but also the Apostle Peter. In 2 Peter 3 and verse 16, Peter is talking about Paul's letters, and Peter writes, Paul writes in all his letters things hard to understand, which some distort as they do the other scripture, which shows that Peter is putting Paul's letters on the same plane as scripture itself. Peter also shows us, this is a, a fifth argument, that the New Testament is inspired in the exact same way as the Old Testament was. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, Peter writes, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the New Testament was inspired in that same process that we just talked about as the Old Testament. And there are a lot of other arguments as well, but let's just stop there for now and just say that it is correct in principle to include the New Testament in this statement, that all Scripture is God-breathed. We can include the New Testament in that as well. Now, notice when we look at Peter's writing that Peter tells how the scripture is produced. And it was produced as men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter tells us something about the manner or the process in which the scripture was produced. But Paul, as well as Peter, tells us about the source of the writings themselves. What was produced, Paul says, was God-breathed, that the scripture was God-breathed. Notice that Paul does not say that the writers were inspired. He says that the written word is inspired. And, and I don't even really like that word inspired. It's the way English translators tried to, to translate God breathed because it's such an unusual word. Perhaps expired would be a better thing if it was his breath and it was coming out of his mouth and out of his body. But Paul's not saying the men were inspired. He's saying the word itself is inspired. Paul is also very clear. He's not saying that there's this writing that's already in existence that God breathed life into. But he says that the writing itself originated in God's mind, as 2 Peter 1.21 also says, and it was communicated through God's mouth by his breath or his spirit. So this process of producing the scripture, though it was produced by different people at different times with different styles of writing and their personality comes through, that that process produced the word of God in writing. And the church has embraced the Bible as God's word from its earliest days, whether we're talking about the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter or the early church fathers such as Augustine, who was born in 354 A.D. Augustine said, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. 
Think about that with me. Think about the implications of that. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. That means the creator of the universe has spoken. And not only has he spoken the worlds into existence, but we have a God-breathed book which we hold in our hands. It's hard to imagine. At our house, we have this big black notebook that we keep owner's manuals and instruction manuals to different appliances and, and, and electronic equipment in that notebook. And it's really useful because if something is broken or it's not working the way it's supposed to, then we can go and see how the manufacturer says it's supposed to work or how we can do things in order to fix what it's doing wrong. And so that big black notebook is a valuable notebook to have. What about this book? The manufacturer of everything in the universe has spoken into existence a book. And when things are broken, we can go here and see how they were meant to work, how life was designed to be lived. But please understand, this book is so much more than an owner's manual or an instruction manual. Because God has given us this book, we are not left to wonder what God is like. Or what God requires of us. We know God's character and his commandments because he has written them down in the scripture. So as a result, we're not groping in the darkness. We're not wandering around through life as if God just made all things and then said, well, you got 80 years to figure it out. Good luck with that. And then walked away. No, our heavenly father has not been left Without a testimony, without a witness, he speaks to us through his word. Yet so many are groping in the darkness, wandering through life because they reject God's revelation of himself in this word. Even in the last few weeks, people have expressed to me they don't like what the word says and so they have rejected the God of this word. In the last few weeks, I've heard people say these things. I've heard someone say, I cannot accept a God who would kill his own son. It's divine child abuse. I heard someone say, if God let bad things happen to Job just to prove a point, I just can't accept a God like that. I've heard someone in the last few weeks say, I just can't accept a God who says that marriage is only between one man and one woman. And those are all controversial topics that I would love to talk with you about what God's word says about those things. But, but the point I'm making at this point is this. If this that we hold in our hand is the word of God, then please understand the implications. That means that we don't place ourselves above it and judge whether it is correct by what we think is right. If this is what it claims to be, that it is God's word, then we place ourselves under it, and it judges whether what we think is right. And it tells us what is correct because it defines what is right. But you know as well as I do what folks here in the buckle of the Bible belt do. Because the Bible is held in high regard, what we tend to do is just ignore what they disagree with and focus on and talk about and accept the parts they do agree with. 
And then people begin to say, the God I believe in is, and then they describe a God that they like better than the God that is revealed by this book. And I can understand in our culture why people would be tempted to do that. I mean, for crying out loud, I can get a hamburger made any way that I want it. I can listen to any song I want to if I have $1.29 or 99 cents even to buy it. So in our culture, we're used to having it our way and getting it any way we want to. So I understand why we're tempted to do that. But understand that when we do that with God, understand what we are doing. When we do that with God, that is idolatry, plain and simple. Because what we have done is we have created a God of our own liking. A God which, by the way, is made in our own image. And these folks look at that God and say, this is my God. The God I believe in is like this. And you've created a God in your own image that's acceptable to you. And the only word you have, the only wisdom you have, is your own. And it feels good. It feels right for a while, and people even praise you and, and maybe join worship of this God that you have created. But one day, because we all do, you will face darkness in your life, and you'll be searching for answers that you don't have within yourself, and you will cry out into the darkness, but the only voice that echoes back is your own, because to you... There is no word greater than your own word. You are your only source of wisdom. If that's where we end up, I mean, where do you go when you think I'm worthless or I don't have a purpose? And we all have those thoughts at times. If you don't allow anyone else's thoughts to surpass your own, you're stuck there. You know, we can allow other people to have different thoughts and different opinions, and we respect them for that. We don't necessarily just reject them for that. Well, God is a person. Can he have other thoughts and opinions than ours without our just rejecting him outright? Will we consider that someone else may have higher thoughts than our own, that their thoughts may surpass our own? God would be a good candidate to fit into that place since he made all things and knows all things. But the point is this. By giving us his word, God rescues us from idolatry, creating gods of our own making. He rescues us from that isolation, from groping in the darkness with no word or wisdom but our own. So we should spend time and invest energy in the scripture because it's God's word. But secondly, we should do so because it's useful. Because it's useful. Look there again at verse 16 and 17. See what it says. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, Think about what that is saying with me. Yes, it's useful. What does that mean? It means that the word is not an end to itself, but it is a means to an end. That means God did not give us this book so that we're a knowledgeable people or so that we're an intellectual people, right? God gave us this word so that we are a changed people 
so that we live life as it was designed to be lived, even in a world that is broken, that is not living the way he designed it to be lived. That's what it says here, right? When it says it's useful for teaching, it means that he guides us in the right path, the path as God designed life to be lived. When it says it's useful for rebuking, that means it tells us when we're on the wrong path and we're going the wrong way. Correcting, that means it gets us back on the right path. It corrects us when we're wrong. And training in righteousness, that means this book gets us all the way down the path of application of the truth to all of life so that we can live life as God designed it to be lived. That's the point of the scripture. I think of James 1 and verse 22 where James says, not to be hearers of the word only and so deceive ourselves. We can think that we're spiritual because we listen to the word a lot. But James says not only to be hearers of the world and so deceive ourselves, but to be doers of the word, to do what it says. And that's what Timothy, that's what Paul is saying to Timothy here. Keep going. He says in verse 17, so that the man of God, let me stop right there. I know sometimes we say man of God when we mean a pastor, but don't think this is just talking to pastors or to Timothy or even just to men in particular. The phrase here is to theu anthropos. That word anthropos is where we get our word anthropology. Right, The study of humans and human culture, because anthropos just means humankind, all of humanity. So uh, it includes men and women. It would be better to read this, that the person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Your translation may say may be competent, uh, equipped for every work, or capable. Think about what that is saying. That we are complete because we have the scripture. That means without the scripture, we would be incomplete. If your translation says that the scripture makes us competent, that means without the scripture, we would be incompetent for every good work that God gives us. If your translation says capable, that means without the scripture, we would be incapable of every good work that God gives us to do. But it means with the scripture, we are complete all that God made us to be. We're competent. We're capable. We are equipped for every good work. Everything good God calls us to do, the Bible equips us to do. That is useful. I want to say just a little bit about how the Bible equips us for every good work, because I think there's some confusion about that. I want to talk about how the Bible does not do it, and then how the Scripture does equip us for every good work. So let's talk about that. First, how it does not equip us for every good work. Some people look at this and they say, hey, that's a really thick book. There's a lot of do's and don'ts in there. And so I'm just going to use this to address every situation that we face. And they think that every fork in the road, that every difficult decision we have to make, that I can just find some chapter and verse that directly applies to it, and I just apply it. I just need to apply it the right way. I just need to get more knowledge about the Scripture. I know some of the women in that Wednesday night Bible study, you came to me and expressed some concern that you were reading a book that said, the Word has all instructions we need for every problem. And it is true, Psalm 119 and verse 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And God does give us direction in his word. That is true. But it does not address directly 
every situation that we face. Think about that with me. There are thousands of things that the Bible does not direct. A few things that I have counseled people about this week that I wished there was chapter and verse on, but there's not. I'm just thinking about a few. Birth control. Uh, the use of Prozac for anxiety and depression. Uh, technology. Smartphones. How old should my child be before they get a smartphone? Internet pornography. Like computers, all these things were not in existence at the time that the scripture was written. And so there are not verses that directly address these things. And then, of course, my bigger concern is that thinking this way actually leads to legalism. What do I mean by that? Well, think about what we're saying when we're looking for that verse. We're saying, if you just give me the do's or don't and don'ts, if I have the list, then I will just comply my behavior with the list. And that's what we long for is this law that we can obey. But you need to understand that is not Christianity. That is not what that is legalism. That is moralism. But what this book says, what Christianity is, is that we're so changed from the inside out that I'm so filled by the Holy Spirit and that I have saturated my mind with this word so much that it has led me to know God, to know Jesus so well. And I'm continually abiding in it. And I'm continually communing with him. And this book has enabled me to have a relationship with him to the point that I develop a wisdom I develop gospel instincts that help me to know in a situation what is honoring to God and loving toward my neighbor without having an exact chapter and verse to tell me exactly what to do. That's Christianity. That's what I want, is to grow that kind of fruit in my life that the word produces, that it, it provides a seed to grow that kind of relationship so I can have that kind of wisdom. That's what Paul says. Look in verse 15. It's just, just not me talking. It's what Paul says. Look what he says in verse 15. He's talking to Timothy and he says, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. D do you hear what he's saying? That the Holy Scriptures are able, that the word there is, is dynamus, that they have power like dynamite. This word has divine power to give you wisdom. Wow. That's why we invest time in it. And how does it make us wise? It exposes lies that we believe. It exposes our motives when they're not the right motives. I think of Hebrews 4 and verse 12 where we're told that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the way the word makes us wise and equips us for every good work. By growing this wisdom in us, if we remain in, if we immerse ourselves in this book, it is able to make us wise. And it's a wisdom that goes someplace, right? There are a lot of different kinds of wisdom. You can be wise about books. Maybe you pick up uh, thoughts and concepts by reading really quickly. 
You can be wise about people and you read people really well. You can be wise about the ways of the world and get along in the world really well. But those types of wisdom don't lead to salvation. This wisdom that we get here is wise unto salvation. And listen, when you read Paul talking about salvation, don't just think that's talking about the spiritual salvation of your soul, right? Yes, salvation includes deliverance from the penalty of our sin and from the power of our sin. But Paul is talking about salvation in terms of restoration, in terms of wholeness, in terms of correcting sin and brokenness as far as the curse is found. Life as it was intended to be lived, that kind of salvation. And, and, and how do we get that kind of salvation? How does the wisdom lead to salvation? It leads us to Jesus. We're wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In Luke 24 and John 5, Jesus said the scripture is all about him, that the scripture leads us to Jesus. This book makes us wise enough to see that Jesus is the way to salvation, not just of our souls, but of all things. I think of Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20, where we read, For in him, that's in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself, God's reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It is through the finished work of Christ on the cross that, yes, we are made new, but it is by that work that all things are made new. So this book has power to make us wise, first for salvation of our souls, and secondly, in that it develops in us a wisdom and gospel instincts such that we're equipped for every good work so that God's kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Now that is useful, being equipped for every good work. Paul uses that same word, useful, in 1 Timothy 4 in verse 8, where he says that physical training is of some use. It has some value. There's the same word right there. But he says godliness has value for all things, holding promise for the present life and also for the life to come. My friend and personal physician, Dr. David Bakker, often quotes this passage of scripture to me because I need it for my body and for my soul. And so I would ask you, and I would say, I would agree with him, that if taking care of your body is of some value, then we should do that. We should eat things that are good for our body. We should get enough sleep. We should exercise. And if godliness, which is produced by this book, is super useful and has value for all things in this life and in the life to come, then let me ask you, are you giving as much attention to your soul as you are to your body? Moms and dads, do you invest as much time taking care of your kids spiritually as you do physically? What they eat, that they get to bed and get sleep, that they brush their teeth, that they know God's word. For all of us, 
if we want to grow and be all God created us to be, if we want to turn from what's wrong and grow in what's right, if we want to be equipped for every good work God has for us, then we must spend time in this word. Redeemer Church, if we are to be a place where people's lives are changed, if this becomes a place where people come and become wise, that they come here and they gain wisdom. If this is going to be a place where people become all God made them to be and that they're equipped for every good work, then we must remain in, we must continue in this word. You want to know how vital this word is? You want to know how seriously Paul takes it when he talks to Timothy? Look at these next two verses that he writes. 1 Timothy Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Listen to what Paul says. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and by his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The scene here is a courtroom. Paul is testifying under oath. He's giving a charge. He's saying, I charge you. I give you this direct order before God. I charge you. It, it's, it's dripping with importance. There's a, a heaviness, a, a solemnity, um, a, a heaviness to what he's saying. He says, I charge you before God and before Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead. You hear what he's saying there? He's saying that this matter of the word is not just so people can have a better life right now. It's not just so we can have a better marriage. It's not just so people can get along with each other better. Although this word does help with those things and it is useful for those things. When he's saying, I charge you before Jesus Christ, the judge of the living and the dead, he says we are dealing when we get in the word with preparing people to face the the judge of all things. We're dealing with eternal things when we come to this book. I love when Paul says, and by his appearing in his kingdom, I imagine Paul saying, you think I'm afraid of the emperor Nero, who's got me in this Roman prison and is about to have my head chopped off? You think I'm afraid of him? He's saying, look, Timothy, Jesus will appear. And when he does, he will be the king. And we will all stand before King Jesus, the Emperor Nero, the Apostle Paul, Timothy, who received this letter. I will, you will. And how are we prepared for that moment? By the preaching of the word, the teaching of the word, the exhortation and, and the teaching and the reproof that comes by the word. Listen to me. If you think this is here only for preachers, you are wrong. Yes, I will give an account to God. Did I speak the word accurately? Did I speak it in a manner or in the way that God himself spoke it? Yes, I'll be held accountable. But Paul gives Timothy this emphatic, weighty charge because the word is that important. It's that vital. It has value for all things in the present life and also in the life to come. So remain in the word. 
Let's pray and ask God to help us to do that. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, give us a love for your word. I pray that you would help us to, to stick with the word even when it's hard. I pray that you, would, that you would plow up the soil in our hearts and that you would make us fertile soil to receive the seed of your word so that we would be so changed from the inside out that we would develop a godly wisdom so that we would produce good fruit, that we would be equipped and prepared, competent for every good work, for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.